sorry, I've talked for a long time today, but I hope it was worth it. Um, and so if, if there are any questions that anyone has. Yes, Michael, we've got a couple of questions so far. Okay. One was an early question, and perhaps you've covered it in the meantime, but I'll read it out anyway. So this is very, very elucidating for me. Do I understand correctly that according to Bhagavan, to purify the mind, the best way is to only meditate on the I, I alone, instead of, for instance, different bhakti practices like worshipping Jesus or Buddha or Shiva, etc. Is puja then actually unnecessary to see my actual nature? Yes, absolutely. This is, this is what Bhagavan is teaching us in verses um, from verse 3 to verse 8 of Upadesha India. This is what Bhagavan is teaching us. In verse, well, in verse 2, he says, but the cause for action is seeds. That's the vasanas of a cause for action. Therefore, action will not give liberation. Because the more we engage in action, the more we are, we are nourishing and sustaining the vishaya vasanas, which impel us to do more and more and more action. So we cannot, by doing action, we cannot gain liberation. That's what he says in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he says, however, he doesn't say however, but the implication however is there. However, action done without desire for any fruit, but for the love of God, Action which is done for God without desire for any uh, action, without desire for any fruit, is will purify the mind. Chitta um, uh, or Chitta is what he says in, in Sanskrit. In Tamil, it's karate tiriti. Uh, 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 rectifying or purifying the mind, gatibari uh, uh, become. Um, it will show the way to liberation. How it will show the way to liberation, but to the extent to which our mind is purified, we will thereby get the clarity to understand. But liberation cannot be attained through action but only by turning within and just being as we actually are. So that's what he says in verse 3. Then in verse 4, he says, Puja, Japa, and Dhyana are actions of mind, speech, and body. And therefore, in this order, they each is better than the other one. So, so better than Puja is Japa. Better than Japa is Dhyana. Why is that? Because the Puja is an action done by the body, which is relative, a relatively gross instrument. Japa is done by speech, which is a subtler instrument. Dhyana is done by mind, which is the subtlest of all instruments. So the dhyana is more purifying than japa. Japa is more purifying than um, puja. Then in the next verse, he talks about puja. He gives a very, very broad definition of puja. He says... Um, worshipping anything, considering all the worshipping, considering all the eight forms to be forms of God, is good worship of God. The eight forms means all the five elements. The five elements uh, means uh, space, um, space, air, fire, water, and earth. 
These are the constituents of all material things. The subtle forms of these elements are also the constituents of all mental things. So the five elements covers everything. And uh, the other three of the eight forms are said to be the sun, moon, and uh, jiva, and the living souls. There are various, there are other classifications also given, but generally this, these are taken as the eight forms. So in other words, considering that everything is a form of God, if you worship anything, taking it to be a form of God, that is good worship of God. Um, that's what he says in the fifth verse. In the sixth verse, he says, better than singing stotras, singing hymns of praise, doing uh, japa is effective. Better than uh, japa done aloud, japa done softly within the mouth is effective or efficacious, let's say. Um, better than uh, 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 japa done by, um, by, uh, by speech is mental japa. That is a type of meditation. So he, he's, he's, he first he says, Jap, he first he said, he talks about puja, then japa is better than puja. Japa, there are different types of japa. Um, so the more, more, more inward, the more mental it is, the more effective it is at purifying the mind. And then in verse seven, he talks about dhyana. And he said, better than interrupted dhyana, uninterrupted dhyana is good. When he's saying better than, or good, what he means is more efficacious in purifying the mind, because that's what these verses are all about. So in these verses, he's covered all the practices of bhakti, but include action. So whether that is uh, puja is action of body, japa is action of speech, meditation is action of mind. So these are all still doing karma. But the highest bhakti is not doing any karma, but surrender. That is what he brings us to in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, Rabban Anyabhava, worshipping or meditating on God as if he was something other than oneself, Ananyabhava, um, in which he is I. In other words, that meditating on him as nothing other than oneself, with the understanding that he is that but is shining in our heart as I, that is anatinam utamam. That is the best among all. So, yes, this is Bhagavan's teaching, but the most effective means to purify the mind, the best of all bhakti, is, is this path of, of self-investigation. Because when we are turning our attention within, we are thereby truly surrendering ourselves to God. As he says in that first sentence of the 13th paragraph of Nana, that I referred to earlier, we, can, we are truly surrendering ourselves to God only to the extent to which we are turning our attention within. Because if we turn our attention outwards, ego is thereby rising and nourishing itself. Only by turning the attention back within to face ourself alone will ego subside and merge back into its source. So this is this path of Atmavichara is the, the, is the culmination of the path of surrender. The surrender can become complete only by Atmavichara, only by attending to ourself. So this is the, this is the most purifying of all practices, and it is also the only practice by which we can eradicate ego. So this is best among all. 
So yes, what, what, you, what you understood is exactly what Bhagavan is teaching us. That's why we, we need to read Bhagavan's teachings very carefully and very attentively in order to understand what it is he is pointing at. It, it may, if we read the early verse of Upadesha Undiya superficially, we can say, oh, Bhagavan has recommended Puja, Bhagavan has recommended Japa, Bhagavan has recommended Jnana, Bhagavan approves everything. Yes, in a sense he does, because it can all purify the mind, but he clearly is saying, what is the most effective? More effective than Puja is Japa. More effective than Japa done loudly is Japa done mentally. More effective than, and that's meditation. And more effective than meditation that is interrupted by other thoughts is uninterrupted meditation. Because if we are meditating on God with love, if we have true love for God, our mind won't be distracted away to, with, uh, to, to, towards other things. If our mind is frequently go, thinking about other things, that means our, we, we are more interested in those other things than we are in God. So our love for God is very deficient. So why is uninterrupted meditation more efficacious? Because the meditation on God will be uninterrupted to the extent to which we have love for him. So Bhagavan is he, he, not just... Um, giving his approval to all these practices, he's, he's clearly pointing out what is the relative efficacy of each of these practices. But the most effective of all is Ananya Bhava, meditating on nothing other than ourselves. In other words, meditating on ourselves alone. That is Anaityanamutamun. That is the best among all. And that is what his teachings are all about. Whether he was answering questions or, or writing poetry, the central theme of all his teachings is the, is the need for us to turn our attention within to find out who am I. This is why when people came and asked Bhagavan questions about this and that and so many different subjects, the first thing he did, he, he, his first response would be, who is asking this question? Find out that first and all the questions, and then you need not worry about all these questions. All questions are superfluous. The one question that is, that is necessary is, to, is who am I? And how can we find out who am I? Only by looking deep within ourselves. So Bhagavan is constantly directing our attention back to ourselves because that is the only way to eradicate ego. So that is what his teachings are all about. I hope that adequately answers that question. Okay, the next question is a very simple one. How to know if one is progressing on the path? Bhagavan had a very simple answer to that. He said, perseverance is the only sign of progress. So long as you are trying to attend to yourself, even you maybe feel you're, you're not succeeding very well, your attention keeps on going out, it doesn't matter. So long as you're trying, you're progressing. Because the very fact that we are trying to attend to ourselves means we have a liking to attend to ourselves. And as Bhagavan often said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. That means love is the mother of jnana. Without love, we will never succeed on this path. So the very fact that we are persevering in our efforts to turn within, in spite of, no matter how feeble our efforts may be, it doesn't matter. So long as we 
persevere in trying to be self-attentive as much as possible, we are certainly making progress. Okay, um, now the next question. Bhagavan says that we should be so keenly self-attentive that we do not give room to the rising of any other thought. I feel that I'm far from that state and I don't know when I'll finally have enough love to be willing to give myself entirely to our real nature. Since I feel that it will take many lifetimes before I can dissolve into pure awareness and recognize that I am nothing other than Satchit Ananda, how can I find the motivation to practice Bhagavan's teaching? Thank you. We all want to be happy. Our desire for happiness is sufficient motivation. We know from experience, why have we all come to this path? Why are we all sitting here talking about this subject? It's because we've all understood to a greater or lesser extent, but all, all our efforts to find happiness in things other than ourselves have been a failure. We cannot find happiness by accumulating wealth. We cannot find happiness by accumulating learning. We cannot find happiness by gaining name and fame. Even if these things give us a little pleasure, they, they quickly, they're not sufficient. We, I have money, I want more money. I have name and fame, I want more name and fame. I have learning, I want more learning. None of us are satisfied. None of us can be satisfied. Nothing can satisfy us other than the infinite happiness that we actually are. Because, because our real nature is infinite happiness, infinite satisfaction, nothing less than infinite satisfaction will satisfy us. And we cannot find infinite satisfaction in anything other than ourselves. So our own love for happiness is, is what is motivating us to make any effort. Even the people who are seeking name and fame and wealth and power and all these worldly things, why are they doing so? What is driving them? It is only their desire for happiness. They just happen to be looking in the wrong direction. We are all looking in the wrong direction. Any effort to find happiness outside ourselves, in other words, any movement of our attention away from ourselves towards anything else is seeking happiness. So all our attending to anything other than ourselves is looking for happiness in the wrong direction. Once we understand that, even how, no matter how, how weak our conviction may be, once we've understood that, what should we do? We should begin trying to turn within. What you say is you don't have sufficient love to attend to yourself so keenly that you thereby give no room to the other, any other thoughts. We are all in this boat. If we, as you will see when we go on through the verses of Akshramlai, Bhagavan is writing that many of these verses of Akshramlai are written from the perspective of ordinary aspirants like us. That is obviously Bhagavan, before, long before writing this love poem, he had attained all that is to be attained. There was nothing more that he, he needed to attain, but he was, for our benefit, he was living through, he was reliving the pangs of separation felt by a true devotee. So Bhagavan, for example, says in, 
in just a few verses ahead of the one we're, we're dealing with now. O Sutralambida, Dunaikan Dadangida, Unnarahei Kata Arunachala. Arunachala, show your beauty so that this mind which is wandering around the world may, uh, may uh, seeing you may subside. So we, that is, we all face the same problem because we all have strong Vishaya Vasanas. So but as Bhagavan often said, the whole of this spiritual path is a battle between Satvasana and Vishaya uh, Vasanas. It's a battle within our own heart, in other words. So we are all fighting this battle and we are all... I'm sure most of us will feel, but we're not fighting it very well. We are we are constantly allowing ourselves to be swept away by our Vishaya Vasana. Doesn't matter. We, all we need to do is to keep on trying. So long as we're trying, we're moving in the right direction. And let's not let's not set limitations on ourselves by thinking, oh, I'm I'm not able to I, I'm maybe many, many lifetimes till I uh, succeed in this. Bhagavan has given us great assurances in so many places. For example, in in um, in uh, Nana, in the um, in the tenth paragraph of Nana, what he says is, um, uh, without giving room even to the doubting thoughts. Uh, so many vasanas ceasing or being dissolved. Is it possible to remain only as Swarupa, uh, one's own real nature? If instead of lamenting, uh, uh, oh, so in, without giving room even to that doubting thought, it is necessary to cling tenaciously to self-attentiveness. And then in the next sentence, he says, however great a sinner one may be, if instead of lamenting and weeping, I am a sinner, how am I going to be saved? If one is completely rejects the thought that one is a sinner and is steadfast in self-attentiveness, one will certainly be reformed or saved. So Bhagavan has given us an assurance. Let us not think that we are, none of us are qualified for this path, but we have been drawn to this path by his grace. So his grace is always on our side. When Arjuna faced the enemy army, such a powerful army, in which his own dear relatives and respected his grandfather and his, his, uh, his, uh, his Acharya, Dronacharya, and so many other much loved and respected uh, um, members of his family were, or, or, and, or, or teachers were opposite him. And it was an extremely powerful army. The whole of Krishna had given his whole army to the other side. And Krishna, without any weapons, was, was, had, was on Arjuna's side. He was Arjuna's charioteer. So the charioteer, Bhagavan is our charioteer. So we have no, we should not, we should not waver in our, in our, in our, um, in our steadfastness in this path, in this battle we are fighting with our own Vishaya Vasanas. Bhagavan is by our side. Bhagavan is our Krishna. He is driving the chariot of our life. So with him on our side, we cannot fail. So with courage and with trust in him, 
and uh, we we need to just persevere in this path. However feeble we may feel our efforts may be, let us continue making these feeble efforts. We, we, it, ultimately, it is his grace we are relying upon, not on our efforts. Our efforts are necessary in order for us to yield ourselves to his grace, in order to surrender to his grace. But it's his grace alone that will win this battle for us. So with full trust in him, with full trust in our, our, the charioteer of our life, Bhagavan Ramana, we should persevere in this path and we will surely succeed. Maybe, may not be for 10 lifetimes, who knows? Maybe it'll take us 10 lifetimes. Maybe it'll take us 10 minutes. Who knows? We, we cannot know. All we need to know is we are already that. All we need to do, what Bhagavan has asked us to do is extremely simple, to turn our attention back, to, to attend to, our, to face ourselves alone. If we have sufficient love, there's nothing easier than doing so. Why it seems difficult now? Because of our lack of love. But if we persevere in trying, at any moment, we can turn our attention the full 180 degrees and thereby merge in him. So we shouldn't think it's far away. We ourselves are that. Tattvamasi. So it's never far away. We ourselves are what we are seeking. We just need to be willing to surrender ourselves. And that willingness we will cultivate to the extent to which we persevere in trying to follow this path of self-investigation and self-surrender that Bhagavan has taught us. So let us not let us not think, let us not impose, let us not create obstacles by thinking that we are we are unworthy. You, you may be the worst of worst sinners. But instead of lamenting, I am a sinner, how am I going to be saved? We need to completely give up that thought and, uh, and just persevere in following the path that Bhagavan has taught us with full faith that his, his grace is on our side. He will always, he's always here supporting us. So... The next question, in Self-Inquiry, verse 13, Bhagavan advises us to be indifferent to empirical matters. I've been practicing applying indifference to any and all things that arise in the mind only with varying degrees of success. My question for Michael is if he can explain what is meant by indifference does this apply to what arises in the mind only? And can Michael give any advice for practicing indifference? Thank you. Whatever appears is appearing only in the mind. So all the first rising is the rising of ego. All other risings are risings only in the view of ego. In other words, they're risings in the mind. So the whole world is in our mind. So whatever appears is rising only in our mind. We need to be indifferent to everything. But Bhagavan, yes, we do need to be indifferent to everything, but we need to remember that Bhagavan's path is a very positive path. Bhagavan doesn't say, give up everything. He just says, hold on to yourself. 
He does tell us, but if we hold on to ourselves, that is giving up everything. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't express his teach his instructions to us in a negative way. He ex expresses them in a positive way. How how do generally in Vedanta he said you have to negate all the five sheaths as not I, not I, not I. How do we negate them as not I? Bhagavan says. Don't worry about the five sheaths. Hold on to yourself. If you hold on to yourself, you are there by letting go of everything else and they will all drop off. So that is the practical way of, uh, of letting go of everything. So don't even worry about being indifferent to everything else. Be passionately interested in knowing yourself. To the extent to which you're passionately interested in knowing yourself, you'll, be, you'll automatically become indifferent to everything else. So indifference is something but. Bhakti and Bairagya are two sides of the same coin. Bhagavan emphasizes bhakti. Have bhakti and the Bairagya will follow in its, uh, will, 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 will automatically come along with it. Because bhakti means the love to turn within. Bairagya means freedom from desire to turn without. So to the extent we have love to turn within, we'll be free of desire to turn outwards. So, uh, how to be indifferent to everything else is to be passionately interested in knowing who am I. The more we cultivate the love to know who am I by looking deep within our heart, the more we will become indifferent to everything else. And our efforts in turning within are greatly aided by Bhagavan's teachings. The more we, we read Bhagavan's teachings and think about them, the more we will automatically become indifferent to everything else. Because after all, what is everything else? It's all just a passing show. That is, now we have so many de desires and attachments. Um, this is my family, my friends, my husband, my wife, my children, my parents, my, my this, my that. All these things seem so real to us. But if we step back a little and think about it, this is all just a passing dream. But things that we were so attached to when we were a child are no longer important to us. The things that we were atta are attached to now weren't important to us in the past. So all our desires and attachments are for fleeting things, things that don't last, nothing lasts. The only thing that is permanent is I am. So the only thing that is worth being attached to is I am. The more we're attached to I am, the more we will be detached from everything else. So Bhagavan's path is a path of attaching ourselves to what is real. Therefore, detachment from what is unreal automatically comes by itself, without even effort, any effort on our part. If we turn within, we are thereby withdrawing our attention from everything else. Simple. I hope that adequately answers that question. Right, so now the next question. A couple of satsangs ago, dear Michael, a couple of satsangs ago, you mentioned about Bhagavan explaining to Lakshman Sharma where and why some of his teachings were misinterpreted. Do you know any instances of such misrepresentations or misunderstandings and why do they occur? Um, there are so many. Um, that is, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely deep and extremely subtle. 
none of us can claim that we've understood them perfectly. As we go, as we go deeper and deeper in this path, our understanding grows deeper and clearer. So the understanding that we have now would be better than the understanding we had 10 years ago, which was better than the understanding we had 20 years ago. So um, there are so many different, there's no such thing as the, the only perfect understanding of Bhagavan. If we've understood Bhagavan's teaching perfectly, we would not allow our attention to go outwards. We'd have no inclination to go outwards. We would turn within and merge back into our source. So we can be said to have understood Bhagavan perfectly only when we have turned within and surrendered ourselves completely to him, when we no longer exist as anything other than him. Then only we can be said to have fully understood him. So there's a whole range of different different degrees of understanding, different degrees of clarity. So we all come to Bhagavan from what we, where we are on our spiritual journey, none of us know exactly. So when we come to Bhagavan, we, have, we are starting from different points on our spiritual journey. So some of us are able to have a deeper and clearer understanding, others are not so deep and clear. So many of the faulty recordings and, um, and misunderstandings of Bhagavan's teachings were not willful. It's just that the, the people who recorded what Bhagavan said often didn't have such a deep and subtle understanding of his teachings. So what they recorded is not what he actually said, but what they understood he meant. Um, because naturally, if you listen to a conversation and try to record afterwards what was written there. You're not going to be able to write every word. None of us have a photographic memory for every word. When we are listening to something, we are processing that. We are, we are, we are trying to understand what is being said. And what is recorded in our mind is not what is actually said, but what we are able to grasp from it, what we are able to understand. So many of those who recorded Bhagavan's teachings, they didn't have such a deep understanding. And so their, their own understanding was reflected in what they recorded. That's why many of the recordings of Bhagavan's teachings are less than perfect. Likewise with translations. Most of the people who translate haven't got such a deep understanding. So they translate according to their understanding, what, what the verse means to them, which may not be the deeper meaning of the verse. So it is natural, but there should be... That's why Bhagavan said to Lakshman Sharma, according to the purity of the antakarana, the same teaching reflects in different ways. If you think you can write a better account, of, a better explanation of the teaching, you write your own commentary. So each one of us, uh, it's understanding from our own perspective, according to our own, the, the degree of purity of our own antakarana. Antakarana means the the inner instrument, that is mind, intellect, will, and ego. Manas, buddhi, chittam, and ahankaram. But the actual impurities are in chittam. Chittam is the will. The impurities are the shaya vasanas. But the, the more the chittam is, is clouded with the shaya vasanas, the more that influences the intellect and the mind, 
and also since ego is that which is identifying all three of those as uh, as itself it, it, it all are affected by the purity of the, the purity of the antakarana is determined by the purity of the uh, chittam um the, the the will so we we all have different degrees of understanding there were some a small minority among those uh, among Bhagavan's devotees who didn't actually like his teachings. They deliberately tried to present his teachings according to what they liked rather than what Bhagavan actually meant. But they are a very small minority. There are some books. I mean, uh, well, one, one classic example is, um, is um, Satdarshan Bashir, the person who wrote Satdarshana was not a he 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 was a sort of devotee of Bhagavan, but he was actually a follower of Aurobindo, that is Kapali Sastri. And he was commenting on not on Uludunapadu, but on Satdarshana, which is a Sanskrit translation of Uludunapadu, but it is not a correct translation because as Bhagavan said to Lakshman Sharma, they hated a dwaita like poison. So many of us, many of the subtle and important points in Uludunapadu, they they either omitted altogether or they twisted it in um they, they gave room for it to be interpreted differently in Satdarshana. And in Kapali Sastri's commentary, he has um interpreted it differently. So there are some they maybe thought they were doing the right thing. They maybe thought they but what they believed was we all believe that what we believe is correct. Uh, we wouldn't believe something if we didn't believe it was the truth. What does belief mean? We, belief means we are taking something to be true. If I, um, if I say, I believe in the existence of God, what does that mean? It means I, 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 take, the, I take the claim that there is God exists to be true. That's what belief means. If I believe that, um, uh, but but a certain political party are not acting in the best interests of the people. That means that I take it, that is what I take to be true. So believing means we take something to be true. So if someone believes something, they take it to be true. So even though we can say they deliberately misinterpreted, that was what they believed was true according to their way of viewing it. So it, it, it's all that is. We are all looking. We are all looking at Bhagavan's teaching through colored glasses. Our mind is a pair of colored glasses. The, the, the coloring in the glasses is our vishayabhasanas. So, according to the to the the the, the, the quality of our vishayabhasanas, and according to the density of our vishayabhasanas, we see Bhagavan's teachings more clearly or less clearly. So. There will always be um, misinterpretation or failure to interpret correctly. This is inevitable. We, 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 we need to take this, we need to take this into consideration when we read anything. Even when we are reading Bhagavan's own words, we are understanding them through, the, through our own uh, through our own mind. So that that is why. When we, if we are studying Bhagavan's teachings and, and trying to put them into practice, we will find as we go on, his teachings, 
for example, works like Uludu Napadu, Nana, Arunacha, Akshamlai, these are works I have been studying for more than 45 years now. And I'm still learning from these works. They're still revealing to me more and more meaning. What I couldn't see in them before, I'm able to see in them now. So this is what this is inevitably what happens. We are able to see the inner meaning of Bhagavan teaching more and more clearly the deeper we go in this path. So um, we we should never think we we've understood things perfectly. If we've understood things perfectly. We we haven't understood how deep and subtle Bhagavan's teachings are. But the more we go into them, the more clearly we understand. But there's still more depth of meaning in them. To the extent to which we go deep within ourselves, we will also understand the depth of meaning in Bhagavan's teachings. So there's there's no such thing as a perfect understanding. Um, some translations, some interpretations are certainly better than others. But we can't say any are perfect. Even as I say, even when we're reading Bhagavan's own words, we are un- what we the meaning we see in them is according to our grasping power. There may be much greater depth of meaning in these verses than we are able to see. Now, in future, we, these verses may reveal to us more, but we didn't see in them previously. I, I I hope that adequately answers that question. And this, this is, we just have to understand the nature of the mind. But the mind is 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 the mind is we are always seeing things through our through the through the colored glasses of our mind, and our mind is strongly influenced by its vasanas. So the 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 denser our vasanas are, the less we will have the ability to see clearly what is the meaning of Bhagavan's words. So that is why we cannot understand Bhagavan merely by reading his works or merely by thinking about them. We need to put them into practice. Only to the extent to which we put them into practice can we truly understand what his teachings are about. So yes, we shouldn't take definitely. anyone's understanding to be perfect. It's all very obvious. If we read books, some people have understood better than others. For example, if we read Guru Vachika Kavai, which is recorded by Murugana, and compare it with talks, we can see a vast difference. Um, that it talks, it, Guru Vachika Kavai is very, very deep and very uh, rich in meaning. Talks is often, it's not at all clear what is being said there. And sometimes things in talks are quite contradictory. For example, there's one place in talks where it's recorded as if Bhagavan said, um, investigation cannot be of the self, it can only be of the non-self, which is quite contrary to his teachings. But that is what that person who recorded that, that is what he understood on that day. It's not what Bhagavan actually said, but it's what, how, according to him, the purity of his mind, that is what he understood. That, that's why we need to do our own thinking. We need to think about these things very carefully. Now, I, for example, I'm, I'm explaining Bhagavan's teachings. I've, I'm translating and explaining them. But I don't any, it, nobody should take it, oh, because Michael says so, it must be correct. That would be a completely wrong attitude. Each one of us needs to think about it carefully and deeply for ourselves and come to our own conclusion. Try to, try to see what does Bhagavan mean here? 
is Michael is Michael representing Bhagavan correctly, or is he is Michael giving a distorted view? We have to think about that ourselves. We each have to arrive at our own understanding according to our the purity of our own mind, because nobody can. Um, that is, Bhagavan expressed these things as clearly as they can be expressed, but still he he, he we can only he he. In spite of it, his expressing it so clearly, it, it will be understood by us only to the extent to which we have the ability to grasp it, to, to, to see what he's saying, to recognize the, the meaning in what he's saying, the implication of what he's saying. So, sorry, that was a rather long answer, but I hope that that answers that question. Yes, it definitely does. Uh, it explains a lot. I always wondered how seemingly a small number of works which Bhagwan wrote himself uh, could lead to such a vast amount of interpretations that are everywhere. So thank you very much for your answer, Michael. Right. Of course, um, Bhagavan was responding to each individual himself. So. That also, that, that is, particularly in books where it's, um, where it's, uh, conversations are recorded, many things that Bhagavan said were not necessarily his teachings in their purest form because he's, he's, he had to tailor his answer to suit the needs of individuals. So we have to take that into consideration. And also we have to take into consideration how accurately did the person who was recording understand what Bhagavan was saying. Because often Bhagavan says things which superficially means one thing, but actually has a very deep nuanced meaning. Actually, the, un the intended meaning is something quite different to what it may appear on the surface. That is why Bhagavan's own writings are so valuable, because we can, we can think, because we know these are Bhagavan's actual words, not his words as they were recorded by someone else, as they were understood by someone else. But of course, yes, what, what you say, Chris, is very true. But, but, um, we have to take that into consideration. Bhagavan often said things but were, were not according to his core teachings, but it was what was suitable for particular individuals at particular times. So Bhagavan, there's somewhere in talks where Bhagavan says, um, oh, oh, I know, when um, that, um, who was in, was named Yogananda, that Swami who had gone to America and started Self-Realization Fellowship and who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. When he came to Bhagavan, either he or his secretary asked what instruction should be given for the uplift of the masses. And Bhagavan said there can be no instructions for the masses, but teaching has to be according to the taught. So according to the needs of individuals, the teachings have to be given. But in Bhagavan's original writings, we have the the very core, the very heart of his teachings, the very, because Bhagavan wrote, well, Akshram Lai, um, Ashtakam, Patikam, these he wrote without any external prompting, the prompting of our nature from within. And other works like Uludunapdu, Upadeshundia, Anmavidya, he wrote in response to Murugana. Ananya, he wrote in response to Shibhakashan Palai, because these were people who were coming only for knowing who am I, the very first question Shiva Prakash and Palai asked Bhagavan was, Swami, who am I? So he's perfectly attuned to the Guru. So because of, so such works, 
are of very great value because they're giving us the real heart of Bhagavan's teachings. And in order to do what did Murugan ask? Mayin ilbum adumayvan tiranum. Reveal to us the nature of reality and the means of attaining it. So by asking such a question, he gave Bhagavan a, a, a bank slate to, to give the very heart of his teachings. But other people come and say, Bhagavan, can I not attain through Japa also? Bhagavan say, yes, of course you can attain through Japa, because that is the, they, they are not trying to find anything deeper. They just want Bhagavan's approval for their doing Japa. So Bhagavan say, yes, it's good. To, what's better than Japa? So that's the appropriate thing to say to such a person who asks such a question. Perhaps the spontaneous um, teachings were a response to mankind as a whole. Yes, yes, yes. As opposed to an individual. Yeah. Anyway, so um, next question we have here. Uh, Bhagavan was a contemporary of Einstein, and I wonder if Bhagavan answered questions on the nature of the cosmos, as in stars, planets, and galaxies. Often images of stars and planets are presented to suggest infinity. Looking up at the stars on a clear starlit night can invoke a feeling of awe and wonder in us and respect for something vastly greater than our little ego. A question I could ask would be, could somehow the contemplation of the infinite outwardness of the universe with all its planets and stars that seem to extend forever in all directions with no outer limit, ultimately be leading us, perhaps paradoxically, back to the self or Atman. Also, what is the hill on the opposite side of the world? Oh, that's a separate question. What is the hill on the opposite side of the world that corresponds with Arunachala that Bhagavan seemed to insist must exist? Or was he mistaken about it? That's something in Peru. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll answer the first, the second question first. That is, Bhagavan said that Arunachal is the spiritual heart of the world. In in some verses, he translated uh, um, from from Arunachal Mahatmya and elsewhere. Bhagavan referred to Arunachal as the heart of the world. And when questioned about this, he said, yes, this is the, the spiritual axis of the world, I think, is some term that was recorded in, by someone in English. So Chadwick asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, if that's so, if it's the spiritual axis, what he meant, what Bhagavan meant is it's the spiritual center, but Chadwick took his, his axis, like uh, the axle of a wheel. So he said, if it's the spiritual axis, is there a corresponding place on the other side of the world? Bhagavan said, mm, maybe. <laughs> then Bhagavan didn't take the question so seriously. But then Chadwick got very enthusiastic about this, and he took out an atlas, and he tried to find out the exact opposite. And he found, and when Bhagavan looked at Bhagavan said, well, it, actually, it's in the ocean. It's off the coast of South America. But then Chadwick found that nearby, not far from that point, is Machu Picchu, which was a, considered a holy place by the Incas or Aztecs or whoever those people were in the, the, before the Spanish conquest of South America. Um, so he said to Bhagavan, well, could this be, be a spiritual action? Bhagavan said, yes, yes, why not? But that, that is, when children came to Bhagavan with their toys, for example, when Bhagavan was living on the hill, children used to come 
with fireworks for, for at the time of Deep Wally. And they wanted Bhagavan to play fireworks with them. So Bhagavan played fireworks with them. So Bhagavan will come down to people's level. It was I asked several old devotees about this, and they said it was Chadwick who, who was so enthusiastic about this idea of a place on the other side of the world. So to humor him, Bhagavan went along with it. But it, it, I don't think we need to attach any importance to that. Regarding science and what Bhagavan said about the world, Bhagavan has said all that there needs to be said about the world in so many places. But for example, in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. What do we have to infer from that and from so many other parallel passages in Bhagavan's teachings? Um, not only in Uludunapadu and Nana and such works, even in Arunachala Ashtakam, he says very much the same thing. In verse 7, he says, yeah, um, enum nine, vondrum. That is, if, um, wait a second, I'll just get the verse. Um, Indraham enum nenevu enil. Uh, if a thought called I does not exist, pira ondrum indru, nothing else exists. So Bhagavan has said, everything depends for its seeming existence upon ego. Why is that? Because everything exists even only in the view of ego. Without ego, there is no world. There is no, there is no body, no world, no universe, no God is a separate, uh, no Anya God, no God is a separate entity. It all is only in the view of ego. So you say the infinite expanse of the universe, the, the seemingly infinite expanse of the universe is in, is, that is the, the physical space is included in the mental space. It's only in the mind that this universe appears and seems to be so vast. So it's all contained within the mind. Whatever, whatever we know about this universe, whether by direct perception or by, um, or by scientific investigation or theories or whatever, all that we know about the world is known where? Known within our own little mind. So the whole of this vast universe is enclosed in this little mind, um, which seems to be inside this little head. <laughs> but actually this head and the whole universe is inside the mind. So it's all, nothing is infinite outside because all name, all forms are finite. The universe is made up of so many different forms, physical forms, and also the, the mental universe, or the universe of our own mind is made up of, of mental forms, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and so on. So it's all forms are finite. And the totality of all forms is still finite. However many finite things you add together, you've still got finite. What is infinite is that which has no limit. That which has no limit is only pure awareness, pure being. Because nothing exists independent of... Pure being means the existence of everything that seems to exist. So the, the very isness of all these things that we say this exists 
that very existence is our real nature is is and that is pure awareness because nothing exists independent of awareness so everything appears in the mind the mind appears in pure awareness so we we need to investigate mind here means ego but we need to investigate ego which is the root of the mind and the, the essence of ego is the false awareness i am this body what is real in the false awareness i am this body is only i am so long as we're aware of i am of ourselves as i am this body there seems to be a vast universe with so many stars and galaxies and um the big bang and or um whatever whatever we uh, whatever we supposed to be the origin of all this whether it's the big bang or genesis or uh being created from brahma's mind or whatever it may be or whether it's vishnu sleeping or adisha dreaming all this whatever we may call it whatever we knowledge we have about anything other than ourselves it's all contained within our own mind and our mind appears that all these things appear only in the view of ego and the essence of ego ego is a false awareness i am this body what is real in ego is only that fundamental awareness i am so ultimately the whole universe reduces down to ego that's why bhagavan says ahande yabamam ego itself is everything and ego reduces down to i am so we cannot find out the truth by looking outwards we need to look within looking outwards is useful because by looking outwards looking outwards sooner or later we'll get tired of looking outwards we'll begin to understand but the knowledge we are seeking we cannot find outside because the more we know the more we know we don't know so it's endless seeking knowledge outside ourselves seeking happiness outside ourselves seeking existence seeking anything outside ourselves seeking god outside ourselves is futile that is why vedanta is based on the mahavakyas and the mahavakyas say you are that that means stop looking outside look within that is the implied meaning that is the practical implication of the mahavakyas till now we've been looking for that whether knowledge or god or brahman or happiness or whatever we love or whatever we're looking for we're looking for it outside the mahavakyas tell us you are that that what does that mean stop looking outside look at yourself so if you want to know what is the truth the infinite truth know yourself until we know ourselves bhagavan says in amma vidyai verse 3 um what is the use of knowing all else if one doesn't know oneself and if one knows oneself what else is there to know other things seem to exist only in the view of ego and ego is a false knowledge a false awareness of ourselves because we're aware of ourselves as i am this body so the whole of this universe is based upon our false awareness of ourselves as i am this body universe has no existence whatsoever independent of ego so bhagavan has revealed to us the scientists some scientists nowadays are trying to find the theory of everything bhagavan has given us the theory of everything a, a very 
perfect theory of everything in verse 26 of Uludunapadu. We need no, look no further. And having, having seen that theory of everything in Uludunapadu verse 26, where should we then look? Not in Uludunapadu, we need to look in ourselves. Uludunapadu is useful because it's telling us to look in ourselves. As Bhagavan said, we cannot find Brahman in the Sastras, in any books. Even in Uludunapadu, we cannot find Brahman. We can find Brahman only by looking within ourselves. Uludunapadu and other Vedantic texts are useful to the extent to which they direct our attention back to ourselves, because it's only within ourselves but we can find Brahman, because we ourselves are Brahman. There's no Brahman other than ourselves. So next question. Yes. Um, can you talk about this sentence from the Bible in the light of Bhagavan's teachings? Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but just say the word and my soul shall be healed. It seems to me that ego is not worthy of Bhagavan, yet only if Bhagavan thinks of us, we can be saved. Um, firstly, that's not actually quite what was said in the Bible. What was said in the Bible, it was, that was the Roman centurion who, was, who came to, his, his servant was sick, and he came to Bhagavan to, uh, I mean, he came to Jesus and asked Jesus to, to heal his servant. And he said, say but the word and my servant will be healed. In the, in the Catholic mass, they have adapted that as say but the word and my soul will be healed. Um, I, I am not worthy. Yes, he, the centurion said, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. None of us are worthy. There would be if we were worthy, grace would not be grace. The very grace is grace because we're unworthy. If if we had earned it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be our, our the fruit of our of our karmas. We are none of us are worthy of grace, but we need not be worthy. The very but that is as an individual, we are not worthy. But what we actually are is the only thing that is of real worth. That is, I am alone is, is the worthy thing. So, so long as we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, we are not worthy. But Bhagavan doesn't ask us to see whether we are worthy or not. He asks us to see what we actually are. If we see what we actually are, all our worthlessness will disappear. And what is worthy, namely I am, alone will remain. So the... We, we have all been attracted to Bhagavan's path. Some people say, oh, I must have done very great punya in past life, so I've come to Bhagavan. That is misunderstanding. We have come to Bhagavan, not because of our punya, but in spite of all our papa, we have, Bhagavan has drawn us to his feet. So none of us are worthy. His grace is infinite. Nothing we can do can make us worthy of his grace. His grace is infinite love. What can you do to earn infinite love. Nothing you can do to earn infinite love. So, But he loves us in spite of our unworthiness because he doesn't love us as a person. He loves what is real in us, namely I am. And he wants us to know 
what we actually are. So um, let's not worry about our unworthiness. As Bhagavan says, however great a sinner one may be, if instead of lamenting, oh, I'm a sinner, how can I be saved? If we are steadfast in self-attentiveness, we'll certainly be saved. Okay, uh, the next question. Following on from the question about not having the conviction to turn within, is it necessary to have dispassion throughout the path till the very end? When I feel dispassionate about this world, in its this world, it's like a great spiritual reservoir which, when the dams break, I only have one desire to turn within. And for that person, I just want to share, which is the false I saying that you cannot do it this lifetime. I would not pay it attention. I've just read it out as it is. Right, okay. Um, the very fact that we are drawn to this path means we already have some at least an inkling of iota, uh, that is a, an iota of, uh, of Beragia. If we, if, we, if we were still wholly passionate about this world, we wouldn't be attracted to the spiritual path. Because we are not entirely satisfied with this world, we have been drawn to this spiritual path. So we all have Beragia, at least to that extent. We all start off with very little Beragia. Bairagya grows as we go deeper in this path. As our love to know ourselves increases, so too does our bairagya, our freedom from desire for other things. So let's not, um, in, the, in most Vedantic texts, they begin by saying, what are the essential qualifications? Nitya, nitya, vastu, vibhika. Uh, that is the uh, discrimination between the ability to distinguish what is real from what is eternal, but what is permanent from what is impermanent. And then Vairagya for all the pleasures of this world and the next. Um, and then the, the, the six qualifications, and then finally Mumukshutva, uh, intense desire for liberation. Yes, we, we wouldn't even start on this path if we did not have these, at least to a limited extent. But we don't have to worry about, do I have enough Vairagya? Do I have enough Bhakti? The very fact that we are drawn to this path means we've got enough to get started. The more we follow this path, the more our Bhakti and Vairagya will deeper, get deeper, and the more our Vivaka will get sharper. So all these things will come automatically if we are following this path. We must have them to at least an eye, a slight extent in order to start on this path they will grow to the extent to which we go deep in this path. So let's not worry about all these things. Bhagavan asked us to be concerned about one thing and one thing alone. Who am I? If we are intent upon trying to find out who am I by turning our attention within, everything else will be added to us. In the Bible, I think Jesus said, seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So if we seek the kingdom of God, which is what is shining in our heart as I am, everything else will be added. So let's not worry about all these other things. They will come automatically, provided we make effort to turn within. <laughs> Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya.